Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast and I have something rather different for you today. If you've been a regular listener since, I don't know, at least since last year, then you probably know the podcast has been running for a while now, more than two years in fact, and that means we're approaching our 100th guest to appear on the podcast. Now, 100 guests doesn't quite mean 100 episodes, because we sometimes have more than one guest per episode. But don't worry, I've been doing the maths. And it turns out that as of our last episode, we have had 99 guests exactly. And so today we have the 100th. So then, realising this was coming up, the question naturally arose, who should our 100th guest be? Who could possibly deserve such an accolade? And the answer we settled on is that the 100th guest should be... a large bag of mail from you, our loyal and enthusiastic audience. We are doing a mailbag episode. So in the autumn of last year, I started inviting you, our audience, to send in questions and comments and ideas, the more challenging, the better. And of course, because you're the intelligent and interesting people who listen to this podcast, you came up with the goods. I actually ended up with way more questions than we can possibly use and discuss in a single episode. But that's okay too, because there are more plans afoot actually, and I have quite an exciting announcement, at least I think it's exciting, about expanding the empire of the Science for Policy podcast a bit. But I'm going to leave that announcement until the end of the episode to build some suspense, and despite my colleagues advising me that nobody listens to the end of a podcast anyway. And so, in the interests of focusing on one exciting thing at a time, let's get back to the main point of this episode. Last episode was our 99th guest, and so today we welcome to the studio our 100th guest, the aforementioned large mailbag full of interesting questions and discussion points from our listeners. But, of course, no one wants to hear me just read out letters for an hour, so I took the liberty of inviting back two of our very interesting past guests to rummage around in the mailbag with me, and they are Dr. Zainep Pamuk and Dr. Jakob Kuosmanen. So Zainep first appeared on the podcast back in episode 47, when she raised the provocative idea of a citizen-led science court to intervene between scientists and politicians on controversial issues. Since then, she has moved from the US to Britain to become Assistant Professor of Political Theory at London School of Economics. And Yakov first appeared on the show way back in the spring of 2021, Heady Days, episode 22, I believe, when he shared insights from the new science advice mechanism that he was at the time helping to create in Finland. Well, he now coordinates said science advice in Finland in steady state as part of the Finnish Academy of Science and Letters. So, after all that, Zainep and Yakov welcome both of you back to the podcast and thanks for being brave enough to face the angry mailbag with me. Hi, thank you for having us. Hi, thank you, Toby. So, Zainep, how is the move to Europe? I should say back to Europe. How's London in the winter treating you? It's been good. Well, until you said London in the winter, I was going to say it's been fantastic. The winter is, it does make me miss San Diego and the sunshine a little bit, but I'm happy to be here. And Yako, we don't need to talk to you about winter. Exactly. Yeah, we're finished, so... Yeah, I think last time we spoke, you were hunting reindeer on skis or something like that. (laughs) Okay, so let's get started. I'm going to dip my hand into this enormous mailbag. I know podcasting is an audio medium, so you'll just have to imagine the uh, very awe-inspiring visual theatre going on here. And I'm pulling out our first question. And this one is from... Actually, this one is is anonymous, but it, it still seems interesting. Here we go. What have been the biggest mistakes in science advice and how can we avoid them in the future? (laughs) Always important to start on a positive note, I think. Wow, difficult question. I don't know what qualifies as the biggest mistake, but I have a a really vivid mistake. Uh, This is an anecdote that I start my book with, and it comes from an earthquake in a small Italian called L'Aquila in 2010. So what made it really vivid is that the earthquake scientists who gave advice before the earthquake were convicted of manslaughter when the earthquake hit and killed 300 people. So what happened there was that before the earthquake, for about two, three months, there was a constant low-level shaking. It's called a seismic swarm, and the scientists uh, were called on to advise the public about what to do, whether they should expect a very uh, large-scale earthquake to happen. Um, And this is where things went wrong, because after their meeting, they had a very brief press conference 
in which it was announced that there's absolutely no danger. Residents should not leave their homes. Um, this kind of low-level tremor does not lead to a big earthquake. Now, the prosecutors afterwards understood that seismologists cannot predict the timing or magnitude of an earthquake. But the problem was the way this advice was delivered, uh, the dismissal of any possibility of a serious earthquake, uh, the idea that residents should simply be reassured. Uh, this denied uh, residents the chance to decide for themselves based on the uncertainty, based on their own risk calculations, based on what kinds of trade-offs they were willing to make, the risks they were willing to take. Um, and it, it just gave a blanket reassurance. It was entirely directed at reassuring, calming, and denying the autonomy of the residents in this business. Uh, so I think this is a cautionary tale, and it's also very helpful because the mistakes here are ones we can learn from. The idea that uh, scientific advice should always consider the uncertainty, should never be um, overconfident, but also should try to allow citizens, policymakers, to judge for themselves how they would make the value trade-offs involved, because there are always value trade-offs involved. So in this case, it wasn't that the scientists were incompetent in the science. It was more about what they communicated and how. Precisely. Well, I think they may have overstated it because I think if, if the, the risk of a big earthquake was truly negligible, then they would have been proved to be right. So clearly they were way overstating the science. So it's hard to tell in this case whether it was just communication or scientific, but certainly the, the communication part was very flawed. I think it's important to make a distinction here between if something uh, they get something wrong, did they make a mistake? Uh, because th those two things are separable. So if the science advisors have gotten some uh, issue wrong in their advice, it doesn't necessarily mean that they've made a mistake. Uh, we should look at the underlying criteria on on basis on which you can say that you know they actually made a mistake. What is reasonable to expect from the science advisors at a certain point in time? Here, I think there's a lot of things related to process communication you know, exactly risks, uh, uncertainty and how to factor those in and weight them in your advice. And uh, but I think what you said also more broadly, I think that the biggest mistake in science advice has been communication of the advice uh, and especially towards the public, I'd say so. Um, this is a, a repetitive mistake that is happening all around the world. And we saw during COVID that I think it got science advice caught uh, it's basically it's pants down and uh, we've tried to learn from it. And I think things are being done on it. But I think science communication, especially towards the public, is the biggest generic mistakes in science advice so far. Yeah, but I think, well, the question you just asked, Jakob, what is reasonable to expect? That strikes me as the key question here. I mean, nobody expects scientists to answer with 100% certainty. So in the case of uncertainty, I mean, suppose the probability of these low-level quakes leading to a big, dangerous quake is one in a hundred or even one in a million, right? Negligible is not zero. It still means by definition that sometimes they'll be wrong. And if they go on TV saying, hey, listen, don't worry, the chances are one in a million. I mean, the advice they're giving in that situation seems right, doesn't it? It doesn't seem rational to advise people to abandon their homes and their lives. I mean, presumably that in itself implies various dangers that we might want to weigh against a very small chance of a big earthquake. If that was a situation, and I realize we don't know for sure if it was, so it's an assumption, but if the assumption is right, it seems harsh on the one time when the odds happened to go the other way to say to the scientists, yeah, well, we trusted you and you got it wrong, so now off to jail with you. So, I mean, let me draw an analogy to intelligence communities. So if there's a terrorist attack that happens, it doesn't necessarily mean that the intelligence has failed, you know, because it is that what could be reasonably accepted, what are the resources that the intelligence community has? Has they used them resource smartly? Has they been, you know, reasonable in their assumptions? Have they communicated them well? So I think it's the same applies to science advice. I mean, I mean as well, it's not even the case that if there is somewhere the best available evidence um, that they could be assumed that they should have been uh, you know, the advice should have been drawn based on that because we have evidence all around the world and, you know, very pr in practical terms, they necessarily don't have access to that best available evidence. So what could be reasonably expected from them? Again, I know the reasonability is a loaded word in itself, but it needs to be deconstructed to a more kind of systematic uh, analysis about accountability and transparency and so forth. But yeah. I would also add that the don't worry part 
like you're assuming something about what that person's interests are, what their what the stakes are. Well, in the earthquake case, I guess it's very clear that they they just want to to remain alive, uh, which is which made it particularly egregious. But for example, in in the vaccine case, uh, if scientists keep emphasizing there are no side effects, there are no dangers. Well, there are some side effects. Maybe they're trivial for most people, but for some people, it's they're going to be very severe. So communicating these in a way that doesn't issue these blanket generalizations about what, what is worrisome for all people, but rather focusing on uh, really on the, the possibilities, on the uncertainties, and then saying, well, you decide for yourself. Really, for most residents, this will be the right thing to do, uh, but we cannot rule out this, this, and this. I think that's very different than saying, don't worry, chances are one in a million, stay where you are. Yeah, I, I think if I may still follow up on that, I think, Zainab, you're co correct exactly on the idea that, you know, if you're communicating something and you're saying there's a risk X if you do Y, basically, that's a very different thing to say that you ought to do Y, basically. And then because there are uh, underlying value assumptions and weightings uh, related to those things, and those two are two separable uh, situations, I'd say. Exactly right. Hmm. Well, I mean, I don't know how long to... Okay, let me prod you one more time and then I'll walk away. So the vaccine case is an interesting one then because we have a situation where, like you said, there's a small but not zero chance of side effects, i.e. for some people it will turn out to have been a bad choice to get the vaccine because it will make them sicker or put them at a higher risk of getting sick than would have happened otherwise. But the science... People are, people are bad at assessing probabilities and how to act on them our brains are not good at this stuff right so it seems to me we might reasonably want our science advisor not just to give us the bare numbers and let us try and figure out what that means but also to show us some way of interpreting them you know like when i say the chance of side effects is one in ten thousand well that's like crossing the road and expecting to be hit by a bus or whatever it is you know you help people interpret the numbers and give an idea of what reasonable response might be rather than just thinking Oh, God, he said side effects, let's run for the hills. And then with the vaccine, you've also got the extra complication that it's not just individual health decisions, which you might want to um, empower, but also public health, like community level health decisions, where a policymaker or a scientist might want to try and encourage behavior that leads to shared immunity. So if you give advice that is open-ended or neutral about what the choice is that follows from the evidence, that endangers the legitimate, I think, policy objective of protecting the population. No, but Toby, you're coming back to my previous point about science communication being the biggest mistake in science advice. And I think what you're touching upon is exactly that point. It is about how to communicate that risk. There is work on how to communicate uncertainty. So you're right that humans seem to be not very good at thinking probabilistically or dealing with these big or small probabilities. Uh, but that raises the question, how best do you convey it so that people understand this, these magnitudes in ways that feel tangible to them, rather than make decisions for them in the way they advise the public? Yeah, okay, great. Well, thank you to our first anonymous contributor. The biggest mistakes in science advice, we think, are around how science advice is communicated. Now, Yako and Zainep, while you were talking, I've been rummaging around in the mailbag and I've noticed that we have a few questions on similar themes. So I'm maybe going to group them a little bit so we can get through a few more. One theme is around helping academics get involved in policymaking. I have one note here from a listener called Corrado Nai. Thanks for your question, Corrado, who writes, if there was one change which would improve career opportunities for early career scientists, what would that be? I'm guessing he's talking about career opportunities to interact with policymakers, incidentally, or else he's got the wrong podcast. And then I have another question here, which actually comes in the form of an audio clip, which challenges my mailbag metaphor a little bit. But here we go. How can we make the jump as academics to policymaking? That one was from Oli Akaban. I think that's your name, Oli. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing it. So we have a general theme here about helping researchers cross over into policy. Any words of wisdom on this? 
Yeah, if I may, I'd say um, I think we can do several things uh, and very kind of low hanging fruits, very easy, simple things. But it just it, it does need some coordination and and willingness on side of you know some some institutions and actors. But for example, we could easily uh, integrate impact and policy training in early and mid career research training. I think this is something that is increasingly done. Uh, it goes beyond the small narrow idea of science communication, but rather more broadly skill sets and understanding how policy making works, etc. I think this is being start, start to uh, happen in different places around the world. We can have peer support groups for young scientists who share their experiences and bent on their issues and challenges. We can have mentoring programs by senior science advisors. And uh, for example, in Finland, we've been building this uh, collaborative early career training called Postdocs for Government. Uh, where young scientists can work in ministries on topics related to their research. And uh, we built the whole training program collaboratively with scientists and with the government in order to get the kind of win-win model where both benefit from it. And then there's a bigger incentive for actually on both sides to engage in the training part. So I think these are the kind of things that can be done. Uh, but also definitely we need more structural, big systemic changes. The issue is very much, uh, you know, systemic and this relates to a lot of incentives, processes and uh, et cetera. I think we could, for example, in the future, imagine that there is an academia is split into two career tracks, for example, that one is focused more on research excellence and second is focused more on applied side and on impact. And uh, you could maybe early career, you could choose one or one of the two tracks and maybe there's a, a connection between the two and they feed to each other and support each other, the tracks as well. So, you know, a lot of things can happen, but th that, that would be kind of more you know, longer term in the future, because we still live in the published parish world at the moment. I was listening very carefully, so I would learn some tips. I'm always trying to cross this bridge, but it's it's not easy. Um, in my experience, policy schools can be great places uh, where practitioners, policymakers, and academics come together. I've attended a few events or conferences like that at the, the Blavatnik School at Oxford or the Candy School at Harvard. Um, I would also, well, this is this is to praise Toby and the work he's doing. I, I think a podcast like this or events, organizations whose aim is to bring together academics with policymakers around uh, issues that they, they both care very much about is just fantastic. So thank you, Toby, for the work you're doing. <laughs> That's very kind. Thank you. You can come again. But can I also maybe just go even more broadly, because one question is about how can you, you know, move from uh, academia into policymaking or how can you uh, engage better with policymakers? But there's even a broader question about how you can impact policy with your research, I think so. And that's the kind of broader frame. And I think there, uh, I think what we've seen so far is uh, too narrow focus on science communication skills, very technical skills on, you know, translating your research output into palatable, accessible form, and then, you know, doing blogs and tweets, et cetera, et cetera. And I think there's an underlying assumption that there's a kind of linear research path from, you know, from, uh, and then at the end of that, track, you'll have a research output, and then you disseminate it with whatever science communication methods. But I think that there is a need for more broader kind of uh, impact training and, and this type of, because, for example, you know, my personal view, when I did my PhD, Viva, and they asked me, why is this relevant, your research uh, for society at large? And that was the, and they thought it's going to be a weak defense because I couldn't answer that question. I never thought about the context of where I was working. I always thought about what is the content of my work and never contextualize it to broader society. And I think there's a training needed that, you know, to raise your horizons for young researchers, that there are several impact tracks. There are several indirect ways you can have an impact in pub or in weddings. And, you know, sometimes like I've spoken with my father, he's 75 years old and he's uh, now after 60 years, he's uh, turned from uh, using uh, oat milk to coffee. So he's thinking about the environment. He's also the voter. So uh, he still uh, can get to vote. So they, there's an indirect impact path through my father to elections, through policymaking and so forth. So so be kind of conscious and be creative with your impact path as well, I'd say. Yeah, and start at earlier stages, maybe. I mean, the dissertation defense, yes, you might get asked at that point, but you should really be starting to think about this when you're selecting your topic, picking your evidence, deciding on cases, um, and, and looking ahead, especially now that academia is, is uh, there's the job market is so difficult. I think knowing these options would be tremendously helpful for young scholars. Hmm. So you're saying it's not just about 
what you do when your research is done, but also about choosing your topic and how to approach it. Precisely. Yeah, because I maybe slightly revising our emphasis on communication so far, I think the kind of work you do or and how you do it also shapes the the outcome, the the effect it will have on policy. Um, so it shouldn't just come at the very end. It should it should be shaping the whole framing of a project, the the impact you want to do, what you want to achieve in the world by the work that you do. Yeah. yeah, continuous interaction. And this is surprising because we do dialogues with uh, senior academics and policymakers. And when we do surveys at the end of these dialogues, they're always surprised and we're surprised that they are surprised by the fact that actually um, they get more out of it than simply disseminating their research. They get new inspirations and thoughts and ideas about what to research in the future as well. So, yeah, it's a, I think continuous interaction we need. We don't live in a bubble. I guess I should add that if you're interested in this, we've also covered this topic a couple of times on the podcast in its own right, uh, most notably back in episode 26, when I talked to Adriana Bankston, whose whole job is about helping academics cross over into policymaking. Uh, and also last June, episode 49, uh, I talked to Lina Top and Florian Schwendinger from the European Commission, who did a whole big piece of work cataloguing the skills that scientists need to get involved in policy, so those are worth listening to. So if I may, just, just to finish off, because there, there's one important point that I want to make. So uh, I think also because we need to be conscious of the fact that, that individual researchers' uh, ability to have you know, big impact on policy is, is dim diminishing all the time because you know, uh, these are systemic big issues, policy issues. And I think the role of the, the era of kind of super impact scientists is gone, basically. So I think it's also important to find the right communities, find the right networks and connect to those and, and have maybe marginal incremental inputs into those communities and networks. You don't change policy by yourself. You connect to communities and networks, which change the policy eventually. Okay, very good. So here's our third question, and it's another one of those talking letters, so let me just press play. So yeah, so my question would be, um, um, are there any programs or anything like that to remove um, the lobby out of the political uh, decision makings and bring the science more in the foreground? Because uh, in political, um, a lot of political decisions are dictated by the lobby and I've never seen or heard of a program that... Um, uh, its focus is on removing the lobby out of the political issues and bringing the science more into it. And there we go. That one is from Rea Rechman, who's a student at the Free University of Berlin. Seems like something to get our teeth into there. What do you think about this idea of removing lobbying from the policymaking process? Interesting. So my, my initial inclination is to maybe challenge the premise in the question a little bit, the idea that somehow lobbying is preventing the science from, from coming to the foreground. Because on many scientific issues, if not all, there are lobbies. There are usually lobbies on both sides of the issue. So on, on environmental issues, there are environmental lobbies alongside the business lobbies. Um, on biotech, there are always lobbies pushing for certain products and um, regulation. There are others pushing for deregulation on gene drives, you name it. On scientific and technological issues related to science, there are always lobbies involved. So I wonder if the question may be saying something like, well, wouldn't it be better if policymakers responded less to the lobbies on scientific issues and more to the, the interests and preferences of their constituents? Now, that's something I would get behind 100%. Um, because lobbying can distort uh, policy, it can lead to, to capture, it can lead to the privileging of various sectional interests rather than the, the general interests. But I don't see this as a matter of, of science versus something. I think science is always in, in the lobbying part as well. Ah, okay. So I was just about to ask, so where in, in that rephrased question that you asked about paying less attention to the lobby and more attention to democratic input, where does science fit? And I think you're answering that science fits in the lobbying part. I think science and scientists sit, sit on both sides. I think there are scientists who are not involved with the lobbies and then there are very strong scientific lobbies. So I think, I think on, on both sides of the, the issue. Yeah, I'd say also, are we talking about science or scientists? Because, you know, there's a lot of lobbying groups that are pushing for 
for things that are very strongly based on science, like, you know, renewable energy sources, wind turbines or something else. Uh, there's a lot of science that goes behind those lobbying positions. So I wouldn't juxtapose them directly as simply saying there's lobbying and then there's the scientific position as such. And I think also, uh, you know, science, as Sainet mentioned as well, it's not always neutral and scientists can push for, you know, like lobby for science as well. I think even more fundamental level, if we go to David Hume's axiom, uh, you know, no old from is basically, then the two appear to be at, you know, very different levels. And, you know, science provides the uh, the, the state of play, that's uh, that what's happening. And then there's uh, people who want to, and lobbying actors who want some policy to realize. So they're different level things. Yeah. Okay. You're not you... convinced. <laughs> well, I mean, I have to say something since my usual job of asking questions has been usurped in this episode. So, so I will say this. I wonder if there seems to be a bit of a, a, a clash of cultures here between the old-fashioned idea of neutral evidence, which I think perhaps is what Raya had in mind in her question, and this attempt to acknowledge that science is also value-laden and so on. And I think that second perspective has a lot to recommend it, but I also feel uncomfortable about throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying that they're both essentially lobbying. I mean, okay, if you want to say that science is lobbying too, fine, you know, like semantically fine, but then it seems to me you have two different kinds of lobbying. One kind that's informed by a particular process of honestly seeking objective evidence, even if it never completely achieves objectivity, that's science. And then the kind that's motivated by financial interests or self-interest or, or whatever. Again, not to say that commercial or industrial lobbying or special interest groups are irredeemably bad or should be removed from the process altogether. And also not to say that scientists never lobby in this in the second way, but just that science, when it's kind of good science, should perhaps be treated differently from the other kind of lobbying because of its different aims and methods and so on. Yes, I agree with that completely. I think uh, while it's, it's true that science is value laden and scientific advisors have their own position and perspective, I think there's an important difference between lobby groups who have a clear agenda and they're, they're picking the science that supports that. That's, that's by definition their job versus the scientific advisory process, which, you know, I, I won't use the word objectivity or neutrality here, but whose purpose is, is oriented toward, as you said, seeking the truth, finding the relevant evidence, thinking about what values and interests are at stake um, in a way that if not is disinterested per se, but at least has um, aligns more directly with some broader interests, whether it's party interests or local interests or the politicians' position. So scientific advisory processes are different than than lobbies, and 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 perhaps politicians should be listening less to lobbies. Uh, well, how how to bring that about? Then that's, I guess that's the very difficult question, isn't it? Right, because that is the question, right? Because Raya's question was: Are there any programs or methods or attempts to do that to kind of de-emphasize the lobbying and centralize, as it were, the science. No, I, I think we're still at the very conceptual level of even trying to disentangle that, okay, there are value positions and we identify those value positions within, you know, some interest groups. And then there are, you know, scientific arguments about some things as well. So we're still very far from operationalizing those in a meaningful way. Yeah, sure, there are science advice mechanisms and others, but, but still how to get them to politicians to listen then. And yeah, I don't have an answer to that. Oh, but it's not so bad. I mean, don't you think in at least at least some policymaking environments, if not many, science does have a kind of a cachet, right? An advantage in the eyes of policymakers. I mean, not just from what policymakers say, but we also have evidence, as you were both suggesting a few minutes ago, from how some of the lobbying is done. You have industry and interest groups all pointing to the science and saying, look, this is what our position is based on. And the opposite, you get attempts to discredit your opponent's view by arguing that it's not based on science or the science has been misinterpreted somehow or corrupted. I wonder if that's part of why it's so hard to disentangle, because if you made a, a law or, as Raya suggests, like invented a system to, as it were, remove everything except the science, you wouldn't actually achieve very much anyway. Um, so one of the things that the, the move towards more participatory bodies and experiments is trying to do uh, on issues of science and technology in politics is to, to remove the, the intermediaries, the interest groups and lobbies that are both doing the science and communicating it to policymakers, but bringing in expert scientists directly with citizen groups 
um, local groups and examining this. So I have a particular proposal that is a bit more adversarial than the, the deliberative democracy mechanisms where um, scientists are examined in a public venue of this sort. But the deliberative ones as well are meant to uh, bring out the values of a, of a randomly selected citizen group or a, a group of local residents and convey that directly to policymakers so that policymakers are not getting both their science and their values from these lobby groups. So I would see the role and innovation of these, these deliberative experiments of participatory democracy uh, as being at least an attempt in ideal, maybe not quite in practice yet, uh, as trying to, to find a solution to this problem. Yeah, I think as with all the questions so far, we could talk about this for a lot longer. And maybe this is inspiration for future episodes, in fact. But the mailbag is still looking angry, so I think we should try to satiate it. Uh, I have here another anonymous question. Why do some policies with a scientific component suddenly get more political prominence than others? It does not always seem to be evidence-driven, for instance, this is also part of the question, how much evidence did we have about the ecological impact of batteries before we all committed to electrification of vehicles? There you go. Well, let's start with just simply how politics and policymaking works. I mean, we know clearly that politics is driven by emotions, sometimes populism and, you know, small interest groups. And, uh, and yeah, sure, science can be cynically exploited also by these groups as justificatory tool uh, in terms of, you know, pushing for their own interests. So, um, it's in, in some ways, it's not a surprise that uh, there is not a methodical uh, approach into uncertainty and science and building policy in that sense. Policymaking is very messy to begin with. And, you know, sometimes policy paths are locked uh, with still many question marks and they kind of pass the buck into the future and then say, decide, we'll sort these things out later. The engineer will sort it out, basically. Um, and uh, but also the, the relationship is not linear in the same. It's much more entangled than clearly that one comes before the other. I mean, science can sometimes discover something and then it moves to political agenda. Sometimes it works the opposite way. There can be a policy objective and the science is brought in to support this realization. I think an example of the former is climate change. Uh, scientists made humanity realize that there's such a thing as human uh, caused climate change. Uh, climate change is odorless, colorless, tasteless. If there wasn't science, we wouldn't have an understanding of it. And now it's in the political agenda around the world. So basically, whatever you make of the means of trying to curb it and adapt to it, that's a different story. But to re simply recognize that science had brought uh, the climate change to political agenda, the opposite the, the direction would be maybe uh, moonshot is an example of that. So there is a policy objective, we want to go to the moon. It, it is geopolitically important. And hence we form this ecosystem of actors who then try to create challenge-based solutions to achieve that policy objective. So they're more entangled and they entwine at different levels. So I don't think one comes before the other. I think it's much more messier the relationship as reality often is. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And one thing I would add is that Funding decisions, how funding is allocated, how budgetary decisions are made is, is probably crucial in determining this. That's not to say that the science and the politics is not entangled at that stage. So, of course, funding decisions can be more scientifically driven. There are some, you know, bodies of scientific excellence that will make these decisions based purely on what is cutting edge science. But then there are also political allocations. Uh, a lot of science is publicly funded. Uh, so policymakers will be making a decision about, you know, whether we go to the moon, whether we, we pursue, you know, superconductors, whatever. Uh, so the, the decision is made at a political level. So I would say that funding really shapes what can be become politicized and what where interests and stakes will grow around an issue. Um, so maybe you would call it the, the instrument through which this uh, politicization happens and and that's why it's a it, it's a contested area and i think it should be more prominent in our discussions about the relationship between science policy and uh, politics generally i think there's a difference isn't there between science driving the kinds of questions we should ask and science driving the solutions and maybe that underpins a bit of what's in in the question here so we understand that climate change is an issue yes sure thank you scientists okay that's now in our policy agenda so what do we do about it and the, the question I kind of suggest, if I'm interpreting it right, that this idea of all getting behind batteries, this grand mission to make a European battery union, whatever it's called, seems to have come not so much from the science side 
as an evidence-based thing, but more from the policy side as a kind of political imperative, you know, with better or worse levels of scientific literacy. And then science is supposed to inherit that and scratch its head and figure it out. Is that process legitimate? Unless it's scientifically not feasible, I don't see anything wrong with the relationship working in this way, to be honest. I mean, I, I think it, it should go both ways, certainly. But I, I don't... Th so, so there's a view that, especially if technological change, that this is purely a matter of, of efficiency or, or what's possible at the cutting edge. And then analog to that is a view of scientific progress, which is just about incremental change. So unless you're at the, the forefront of research, you don't know the next step. So no one else can, can shape uh, the development of science, only the scientists who have been following all the previous findings. I, I find this to be unsupported by evidence. So I think it's very uncertain which direction in which science and technology can grow. Uh, so political interests can be just as good an input. They can't determine it, of course, and, and there are certain things that are just going to turn out to be impossible. You know, you put a lot of money behind something. I think maybe cancer research was seen like this and then not much happens despite millions and millions of funding. Um, but it can happen and there can be progress. So I think just the uncertainty of this leaves open all the options as, as possible. Yeah, I'd say I, I, I agree with that, with Zainab. I think, you know, if we look at things like a very large scale mission level objectives, and then it leaves a lot of things relying that are still kind of, you know, try to find out one, some way to it. It doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, uh, do solution X clearly, but it's more like, let's try to solve this somehow, the issue. And it leaves, it can leave a lot of explorative space for scientists as well. So I don't see any issue in that in principle terms. Mm -hmm. This episode is starting to run long, but I think it's good stuff. And I have a couple more questions I would like to get to. So here's another voice note. So the question is, how um, strategic or tactical is the job of a science advisor and what are the tactical or strategical um, aspects of it? That was the voice of uh, Sebastian Werner, who is a research associate in engineering, it says here. I really like this question because there is a debate in philosophy about whether science advisors should be strategic or not. Uh, so, for example, Professor Stephen John has argued that uh, he's against honesty, transparency, sincerity, integrity in science, um, mainly suggesting he's that... against them. Against them, yeah. Well, he doesn't mean against, against their practice within science, but, but he means for advisors, he, he wants them to be strategic. Uh, so it's a very provocative article. I would highly recommend everyone to, to read it and engage with its ideas. Now, strategic can mean two different things. One is that they are being strategic so as to make sure policymakers and the public form the right beliefs. The other is that they can be strategic to get across their own uh, policy positions, to push for their preferences in policy. I think the first one is probably more interesting. I don't know, while certain policy uh, science advisors will push for their preferred policies, um, I think that's that's maybe less desirable or more obviously so, but the, the first one, whether they should really try to make sure people have the right beliefs about things and, and be as strategic and tactical and even manipulative along the way, that's an interesting question. Uh, maybe boringly, I, I'm against this. I oh, think that's that not boring. View <laughs> Go ahead. That requires a lot of confidence from advisors, both in the science. So it under high degrees of uncertainty, that doesn't work quite as well, because if things go wrong, that the whole strategy backfires and there's a lot of loss of trust in science. And that gamble is not worth taking, given that most science is uncertain. Under uh, in, in a policy environment, things are very fast changing, politics moves fast. So playing fast and loose with people's trust in science um, just does not seem worth it to me. And, and the second one is about the, the role of value. So when, when scientists uh, do try to be strategic to bring about some outcome, I think they're, they're acting based on what they think is best. And I don't know that I, that I see their best role in the political sphere as being that. Now, of course, I don't subscribe to a fact-value distinction, but this just really makes it much, much harder to detect what, what exactly is being done, what whether scientists are, are trustworthy or just trying to make you believe something that you would prefer not to. So I think, I think this is a, a troubling dynamic. I, I think that, uh, Zainab, you're making an important point, but 
points, but I'd say also that the, the whole debate would benefit from a much larger lens and maybe that would kind of take it to a different direction. Uh, because I think, you know, like uh, I'm referring here partly to a previous episode that you, you made with uh, Sir Jeff Mulgan. I think he rightly pointed out that, you know, there's definitely need to look more broadly into kind of methods of creating fusions from different multiple streams of intelligence uh, and you know how to get the, the question would be more about how to get the the best possible most comprehensive understanding of a policy topic to begin with and so that means multiple streams of intelligence and then scientific advisors in their traditional form are just one uh, multiple of the multiple streams and so maybe then we should look uh, more broadly of different roles uh, instead of just simply looking at the uh, the limited relationship between the policymaker and the scientific advisor in the whole equation. So if we expand that and explode that narrow limited frame, maybe then we get better or at least different answers to the question. All right. I have one more question for you both. And this one is uh, kind of entertainingly open-ended. It's from uh, Mara Franca. And I will do my best Mara Franca voice now. Okay, what are ways for science to guide policy and what are their caveats and advantages? No, it's uncanny. It's like he's here in the room with us. I mean, in a way, the answer to this question is, you know, well, I know a good podcast you can listen to, but also to be fair to Mara, it is actually very much a live question. And, and since it's the last, the last question of the day, if I can pull host's privilege for a minute to kind of frame it a bit, one thing I'd say is that really the kind of obvious way in which science guides policy is that policymakers ask questions about science and scientists answer them. And we can nuance that in all kinds of ways, but I still feel like at the root of it, that's the model that most people have in mind when they think about science advice. And I know it's the model that, for instance, the scientific advice mechanism that I work for is built on for all our complexity. You know, it's basically just this, a politician asks a question and some scientists answer it or try to answer it. So, is that a good way to understand scientific advice, do you think? And Jakko, you recently designed a science advice mechanism. What do you think of the question and answer model? Yeah, so, so in our process, we, we started from the basic, very you know, simple, uh, narrow question and answer logic. And I think there is a lot of value to it to begin with in many ways, don't get me wrong. But at the same time, when we uh, did you know, background interviews with 300 civil servants, politicians, uh, academics, and so forth, uh, we found also that there's something, there's a need for much more, especially in relation to complex uh, systemic policy topics, which have a lot of interconnections. Uh, and then basically, you know, in, in principle terms, there's infinite amount of evidence that is connected to it in some ways, if you will. Um, so how to find the right questions? Sure, there are scoping and there are ways of, you know, trying to have a dialogue about the questions themselves and then try to answer those questions. That has value as well. But I think still we should go further and we should challenge that or at least uh, ask the question because when we found out that there's a need for something, something more, what exactly it, it is, uh, is the question. I think it's something complementary to the question and answer logic based model of science advice. Um, I think there's a things bubbling under at the moment uh, in different places. I, I, I can see that people are experiencing that we need something more. They're trying to conceptualize it and they're trying to find new practices for it. So let me just give a very short example. Like we've done this in Finland as well, when we were trying to uh, build this new kind of science advice mechanism. Uh, we stumbled upon things like, uh, you know, red teaming, which is basically an adversarial model of testing the tenacity of hypothesis or products or claims. So basically you turn things around from question and answer logic to simply showing that we have a proposal, a solution, and then bringing in the other side to actually test it in different ways. I think that turns around the frame uh, a bit different from, from the very narrow uh, question and answer logic. So uh, we found, but this obviously requires, for example, a lot of trust. Uh, what we've done is we've done it in very limited settings, but we have policymakers actually coming on the table uh, with you know early drafts, hypotheses and proposals, and they let the scientists roam free and basically tear it apart, deconstruct it uh, in, a, in a friendly adversarial sense. Uh, and then they try to co-design pathways forward together and try to see how we can make this better. Obviously, the policymakers are still the ones who are making the final decisions. That's the model. But I think we need to go beyond the whole kind of, you know, in science policy interface and looking just simply technically trying to find new ways of 
you know, synthesizing evidence and, you know, uh, you know, translating and curating it and pushing it to the policy side. We need to break apart both sides of the interface and, and then, you know, rethink it conceptually and in practical terms as well. Aha. I definitely want to hear Zaidip's feedback on the red team idea as someone who's thought a lot about adversarial models of science advice. Yeah, yeah, Toby, you, you guessed correctly. I was very excited to hear about this red teaming exercise because it seems to uh, have a very similar logic to my proposal for an adversarial science court. Um, I think that's that's a really productive way to explore issues, to find out the, the promise and weakness of, of different proposals, different approaches, different scientific views. My only addition to that would be to, to bring the public in more, so make all of this process more participatory from the beginning, um, from determining the, the direction of science funding, allocation decisions, uh, to involving the public at the stage of decisions about which policies or which approaches they prefer, whether um, adaptation or mitigation, or do they want lockdowns or uh, more targeted measures. So these seem like crucial decisions that have an important democratic or value component. I mean, all, all scientific issues are like that. So I would, I would just say, try to think more um, inclusively about all of this. And I think that would also um, be great for uptake and trust. Um, but yeah, these are, these are great to hear. I, I really like these innovations, Jakob. Thank you. I, I'd say just to add to that, that yeah, definitely, this is something that we've looked into and, and that's a direction that we should uh, and hopefully will be taking it. Uh, very practical terms, there are some issues that still need to be solved because, for example, very basic thing is the more public and open you make and more multi-stakeholder dialogue you engage, the more easier it becomes a spectacle instead of an honest dialogue about, you know, trying to uh, simply explore and also find faults within ourselves. Uh, but then it becomes more defensive, more strategic, pushing for and, you know, bogging down to a certain positions. So I don't know how to solve that, but the, you know, prima facie, there is a certain tension to it, but I don't say that it's unsolvable as such, but it just requires some brilliant brains, hopefully, to help us with that. We recently ran a seminar for early career researchers on science advice. I mean, they weren't people who worked on science advice. They did all kinds of things, but they were just interested, I guess. Um, and as part of that, we asked some questions to see how the room divided and, and provoked some debate. And one of those questions, which I think was proposed by my colleague Agnieszka was, imagine you're a science advisor and you're asked by a politician to have a private meeting behind closed doors, knowing full well that what you say will never be made public. Do you agree to do it? And I thought it was an interesting question. And I thought it was very interesting that the room split, if I remember rightly, about 50-50 on that one. Yeah, I'm also torn. So maybe that explains why everybody was torn. I mean, on the on the one hand, I'm all for openness and transparency and, and involving the public in these things. On the other hand, um, politics often does have secrecy. There are some arguments for keeping certain things secret. And there's a sense that if, if one scientist doesn't do it, others will have a conversation with that policymaker. So if yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I'd say also that it's important to have there are certain probably a very limited amount of where close dialogue, you know, confidential close dialogue is warranted as such. But then there's a difference between, you know, transparent, uh, but close dialogue. And there's a uh, and then transparent and very broad, open, inclusive dialogue. I think, you know, for example, with our case, we've done it with transparency, but the, the, it's been a close dialogue with not so many stakeholders involved. Then we just simply released the transcripts out of it. So, uh, but surely, absolutely, we should also move towards a more inclusive and open dialogue as well, if possible. Well, intentionally or otherwise, those are great final words because it's time to wrap up. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. I want to say thank you, of course, to Zainep and Yako, not only for gamely going along with this conceit of the mailbag, but also really taking these questions and making some very interesting discussions out of them. Thank you very much. This was a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much to both of you and uh, many congrats on the 100 guests. Yeah, thanks. I'm pretty chuffed too. And on that note, thank you so much to everyone who sent in questions, not just the however many we're able to cover today. That was just a representative sample there were lots of great and interesting questions that we just couldn't use because of time, so I'm sorry about that. And beyond that, I did promise some exciting news at the top of the episode, and if you've listened this far, you deserve it. Podcasting is fundamentally quite a lonely job in that you make these episodes, you send them out into the ether every two weeks, 
Uh, and I know we have a lot of listeners because I can see the download stats, but it's not like social media. There's no obvious way for you to respond and tell me what you think or even give me a like or whatever. Um, and really, it's been so much fun receiving these questions the last few months and entering into some conversations with listeners for the first time, really, that I thought, you know, I want to be able to do this more. So here is the announcement. And if you skipped all the way to just to hear it, then shame on you. Uh, the Science for Policy podcast is launching an online community. That sounds very grand. We're basically just making a Slack channel. But we'd love it if some of you dropped in and said hi. The link to the Slack channel, of course, will be in the show notes right here. And you don't have to pay or get permission or anything. You can just show up and say hi. It's brand new and therefore, obviously, so far very empty. But I plan to open a thread after each episode goes live where you can join and continue the discussion of whatever topics are discussed in that episode. You can say if you agree or disagree. You can debate with other visitors. And I also hope some of our podcast guests will show up there to engage in the discussion too and answer your questions and so on. But even if they don't, well, we all have each other, which could also be a, a pretty great resource if you're one of the thousand or so science for policy geeks who listen to this podcast regularly. So yes, Slack channel in the show notes. Come and say hi, stay for the cookies. And finally, thank you very much indeed for listening and supporting, not just today, but throughout the past 100 guests. And we have no intention of stopping yet. Ciao. Oh, and to the lady who said she doesn't like a theme music, tough, I do. And it's also public domain and I'm a cheapskate. Bye. The Science for Policy podcast is created by Sapea. It's produced by me, Toby Wardman, with additional research and support from Agnieszka Pietruchuk. Sapea is a consortium of Europe's academy networks representing more than 100 academies, young academies and learning societies from more than 40 countries across Europe. We're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism, and as such, we're funded by the European Union. Having said that, the opinions you hear on this podcast are those of the guests, and sometimes mine, but certainly not the views of the European Commission. This music is composed by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Sushchenko. And this last bit is particularly good.